Hello and welcome to Storal Stories, LCF's object-based podcast in which I, Susanna Cordner, invite in a guest who works in or with fashion and ask them to bring in an item from their work or from their wardrobe. We then use that object as the basis for a part of our conversation. Today I'm joined by Dr Nabil Nayal, a fashion designer, researcher and educator uh, and founder of his eponious fashion brand. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. So our conversation will have three sections. Uh, we'll first look at Nabil's practice and profession. The second will discuss the object that he's chosen to bring with him. And the third will look at your personal relationship to clothing. So I find a really good place to start is always to investigate the position or perspective that you're bringing to the conversation. Uh, so to set the scene, could you please describe your practice, profession or what you do? Yeah, so I describe myself as a practice-based uh, researcher, designer, academic, all of the above, I guess. Um, I don't necessarily see myself or have, have ever seen myself as somebody who is just a designer, just a fashion designer. I like to think that I am able to um, sort of break down those walls between disciplines a little bit and try to um, work in different kind of creative and also research and educational contexts. Um, my background is that I was born and raised in Syria. Um, I moved to England when I was 14 with my mum and my brother and sister, my dad. Um, but then he went back a couple of years later and then um, we kind of lost touch for a while because he lived in Saudi Arabia for quite a long time and was a researcher there and working there for a long time. So I was very much brought up by my mother who was very passionate about me pursuing whatever it is I wanted to do. And from the outset, that's always been fashion. But I think 14, 15, you don't really understand what fashion necessarily is. You just think it's these fabulous, like an amazing garments, uh, describe them as sort of dresses at the time, probably in really simplistic terms. Mm -hmm. And then you, and I embarked on my fashion education at Manchester, uh, Manchester Metropolitan University in 2005. Um, and very quickly realised that fashion wasn't at all what I thought it was. But it's because of that I actually found it even more interesting and was more interested in the conceptual kind of frameworks, um, the philosophical underpinning, and eventually, of course, the research that is so important to me now. After Manchester, um, I was fortunate in winning quite a few important awards, and one of them was the British Fashion Council's um, Education Foundation, which enabled me to go and study at the Royal College of Art in 2008, which is where I began my master's. Um, and that was hugely challenging because um, as part of my award, I was, I mean, I was interviewed by Christopher Bailey, who was then the uh, director of Burberry. And straight after my interview, when I found out I was successful, he said, do you want to come and do some work experience? Of course, I jumped at the chance and had spent basically all of my summer between my undergrad at Manchester and my then MA at the Royal College working at Burberry, which was of course amazing, but equally it was sort of, you know, in the deep end in terms of fashion and the industry and what it was all about and learning things really, really quickly on your feet. And so by the time I got to the Royal College, it was like, it was, it was really, um, I suppose overwhelming in a way, but equally I wanted even more and I was desperate for it, I was hungry for it and I couldn't wait to get started. And that, of course, was an incredible journey at the Royal College. And I'll talk about that more if you want me to at some point later in this. But it was an incredible, rewarding um, journey that where and, and in, during that time, 
this concept of disruption was beginning to emerge in my work, but I didn't know what that was at that point until five years later when I began my PhD, then reflected on all that stuff that was going on in my master's at the Royal College and was able to write about that in academic um, you know, framework, apply academic frameworks, which then allowed me to understand the concept of disruption, which is what my PhD was about. And since then, in terms of my career, um, I've shown at Fashion Weeks. I've had the most amazing opportunities to um, be part of the LVMH Prize, which I was twice, and I became a finalist in 2017. Um, I'm very fortunate to have been um, a recipient twice over of the British Fashion Council's um, Fashion Trust Award, which has been brilliant, and more recently the um, COVID Crisis Fund to help um, as many designers as they could um, to survive this very difficult time in the, in the environment that we're in now. Mm. So there are so many different strands within that that I'd love to pull out. That you also you were really clear about kind of crediting different support systems within it, which is really interesting. I was caught by something you said really early on about the idea that fashion wasn't what you expected it to be. So you had this origin idea of dresses and glamour, and then your education takes you on a different path. What 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 did fashion turn out to be? So I think fashion at the very beginning for me was just this very loose term that, like I said, was all about the, you know, that amazing dress and that amazing moment. And, you know, the time when I was um, sort of really constructing this idea of fashion before my BA in Manchester, I was obviously very aware of, you know, McQueen shows in the 90s, Galliano's extravagant shows in the 90s as well, and all these kind of huge spectacle um, performances that were going on. And, um you know, Caroline Evans' Fashion at the Edge, that book has just been, it was very important at that time for me to really understand the 90s, which was so um, influential in terms of the show reaching its peak. And I think that was what I saw fashion as. And I think a lot of people did and sometimes do, to be fair. But then when you go into education, when you start to really figure out what it's about, it becomes quite you know, it's about the technicalities of the garment as well. It's about the the emotions behind the person who's wearing the garments, why they choose those. And I use the word garment now and not 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 clothes, which my partner laughs at me about because, you know, it is it's become very much about removing it from that spectacle and that kind of I don't know, in a way, taking it out of that limelight and that that sparkly environment and actually taking it into a more scientific environment where you then do start to see you see garments for their constituent parts and you do start mm. the elements that have to come together to form an identifiable garment. You know, the shirt being made up of collar cuffs, the whiteness of the shirt, the way it sounds and the way it feels in your hands. And all of that then is what fashion has become for me now. It's not just this surface level, here's the glitz and the glory. It's actually, it can be that, but that makes up like 1% of my experience in the industry. And the rest of it actually is a lot deeper than that, thank goodness, actually, mm. I have to say. Absolutely. So it's the genetics, the biology behind the, as you said, kind of the breakdown and the stories behind them and what it takes to produce them that makes them interesting rather than just the finished effect, perhaps. Yeah. And I think, like, I'll never forget, um, I think it was in my second year of Manchester and um the course leader of the course at the time Alison Welsh who I know really well and is actually once one of my supervisors of my PhD when I went back to Manchester she said to the class she said you know you will never see fashion in the same way again once you begin begin your final year and that to me was you know there were no truer words because 
then when you get to your final year and you're really having to, you know, that learning curve that's like this and goes really steeply, like really quickly. And by the time you get to your final year, it's like you understand so much about fashion, so hopefully. Um, but you don't see fashion in the same way ever again once you've been through that experience. And I think one of the most obvious changes in me was prior to doing my BA, seeing films or watching films and seeing people walk down the street and not really necessarily looking at their garments. And after my BA, not being able to see anything but garments. Everything around me was about clothes and every film I watched, I would dissect and analyze, especially historical films or films that were, you know, trying to, you know, look the Elizabeth films, for example, um, which were looking back at the 16th century. I couldn't stop analyzing the construction, the way something fitted or didn't fit quite often, unfortunately, um, or the way something would be, the color combinations, and you just really can't help but see the finer detail, I think. And that's that that's the beauty, I think, of being so um, immersed in your subject is because you get so close to it. But equally, there comes a time when you have to step away from it. And that's something I think I learned over time was actually getting really close up to it and analyzing it to the minutia, but then also stepping back and and also seeing the bigger picture, perhaps. Mm, yeah, that's fascinating. And how does uh, that uh, how does that analysis of the minutia compare when you're in perhaps a industry specific opportunity, perhaps around one of your own designs, versus maybe when you're in a researcher or educational capacity? Do you think you read clothes in the same way in those two different sides of your profession? So I've worked in different um, at different levels of the industry. Um, when I was at the Royal College, because I'd won the Graduate Fashion Week Award at the time for Best Women's Wear, I think it was 2008, one of the um, the part of the prize that I was awarded was to go and work at River Island, which is who was sponsoring um, Graduate Fashion Week back then. And, you know, you very quickly learn um, how different the culture is in an environment like that and how different you know, the approach is to design compared to Burberry, for example, or compared to other designers in the industry like McQueen or Galliano, for example. And so, and I've worked at couture levels too. So I worked at Belfort Sassoon, who um, David Sassoon, who run, used to run the company. They were really, really famous in the 80s and were known to be the best couturiers in the UK and dressed Diana, Princess Diana. And so you see the very many different approaches to fashion. I think you learn very quickly what's not you and what's not for mm. you. Um, so again, it's that whole, you know, you go into the industry very much like you did with the, we do with a degree, degree, I suppose, which is this kind of bright eyed, everything's amazing, but then you quickly know what is wrong and what's not right and what is right for you. And it's often the no that's more important than the yes. Mm. Um, and so I learned very quickly that um, high street just wasn't the best fit for me at all. Um, so in terms of that finer detail and minutiae, that's something I apply to my, not only my research, but also to my practice as a designer, whether it be my own label or whether it is when I freelance for other designers or do collaborations. It's always very kind of, you know, this is the approach I want to take. And I think it's born out of this kind of, you know, ultimately I want to be able to go to bed at night, put my head on the pillow and be satisfied with what I've achieved and know I've done my best by that. And also feel like whatever I'm putting out into the world, which is, you know, as a designer, you have a responsibility and whatever you put out into the world is, is your calling. It's your choice. You decide and you've got to be satisfied with that because once it's out there, it's out there. 
And so I want to make sure that every garment I produce and everything I come up with is the best it can be. So I can't escape the having to do the minutiae, but equally having run a business now for five and a half years, you do have to think about the bigger picture as well. And what I've had to learn over the years is balancing both things somehow, which is something I still sort of am trying to do. That sounds like a lifelong learning. Yeah, learning I, think so. I don't think you ever like you're ever able to do that because most people tend to be better at one thing than another. But it's it would be so good if if we could all, or if I could get really good at the detail, but equally at the really big picture and the planning and the forward thinking or whatever. But that's why I think it's so important to collaborate because we're not all good at everything 100%. And it's so important to reach out and work with other people, which is something that I'm very passionate about anyway. Yeah, I think that's something that I really admire in your work and the kind of surrounding communications because you are very good at kind of crediting the people that you work with and who produce the garments or the other aspects of your team. And, and as you say, your collaborators, uh, how does that influence the way that you teach? Um, so you also work as course leader for MA Women's Wear at London College of Fashion, both in terms of ensuring perhaps that your students will look at the bigger picture as well as the detail, but also that essential idea of being a collaborator and part of a network perhaps yeah so I think the most important thing from my perspective as a designer who educates students is remembering that I have a responsibility to do my best by them at all levels no two students are the same and many of my students have come from very different cultural backgrounds different parts of the world And when you put all of that energy into one room, you're already collaborating with people from different environments, different cultures. And that energy and that adrenaline that comes with that, I think, is so profound. It just feels natural to want to keep going with that and to reach out beyond the the course parameters and actually reach out to other courses across uh, across UAL, but also across different disciplines too, not necessarily just fashion and outside of the academic environment with other sectors in the industry as well. And so my students are really good at doing that, I think, because it kind of is natural and necessary, especially now to be really good at at, um, collaborating. Um, I think that it's in terms of the, my approach to teaching as well, one thing that I think is really important is making sure that whatever they're producing is authentic to them as people um, and is going to culminate in an outcome that is meaningful and is not just, you know, just another collection for fashion and then we're going to forget about it in three minutes once once you've left the show or whatever it is. Like, you know, the industry, especially women's wear, is already really oversaturated and so if you want to stand out, I think in order to do that, you've got to be coming from a place of authenticity. But we've also, as I was speaking to um, Candice Fragas, who um, is fashion director addressed, she came in in one of my talks with the students and she said it's authenticity and community. And I think those two things together, hand in hand, are so important when you're educating students, but also so important for the industry as well as, you know, going forwards after COVID. It's very much um something we have to adopt if we haven't already done so. I think that's an amazing flag to to fly over your work, authenticity and community as a pairing. Within your initial overview and kind of introduction to your career and practice, you'd spoke about the idea of disruption um, and I've read you describing yourself as a disruptive designer. I think this relates to your PhD research, but it'd be really interesting to hear more about that and what you mean by that term. 
Yeah, so I mentioned earlier how at the Royal College I'd started to play around with the, you know, the kind of idea of disruption, but not necessarily knowing what it was at the time and not using that term at all. I was using the term juxtaposition. And that in itself only happened because, um, I suppose, as you know, I've been obsessed with Elizabethan dress for a very long time. And when I was at Manchester, that's something that I really loved and still do love. It's like my biggest passion in life. Um, but it was important for me to also try and find something that could be a contradiction a little bit, as opposed to Elizabethan dress. So what was the opposite of it or the perceived opposite, which was at the time technology. So it was actually quite by chance how I landed upon this idea of using 3D printing within my work. And it happened one spring morning, I think in 2009, I want to say, when at the Royal College, I was climbing up the many, I think it was like seven flights of stairs because the lift, as usual, was broken. Uh, <laughs> so we had to always take the stairs, which is fine because it was amazing exercise, but also... I was going to say, get your steps in. <laughs> oh, yeah, your steps in. It's brilliant. And I was, you know, it was, it, it was also really good because you could just stop at various points and either look onto Hyde Park where, you know, it was amazing or you could actually just see what was going, around, going on in different floors around you. I must have been really tired that day because I think I stopped at level two and instead of waiting for level five, which is probably my usual pit stop. And <laughs> I saw um, a lady come in with a tray full of these kind of, um, obviously what I know now is, uh, is 3D printed objects made of kind of plaster materials, but at the time it looked like um, ceramics or something like ceramics. And I was really intrigued by them. And so I followed her into this room, which was like, you know, you had to tap in with your card and I managed to get in behind her. And I was like, what's going on? What's this about? And she explained it to me. And I was straight away, I was like hugely drawn um, in and I wanted to get involved and I explained to her my projects and what I was doing about um, the Renaissance and how I was factoring that into my work. And there was at the time also this discussion about sportswear, which was coming through my work a little bit. And so I then met up with Tristan Weber, who um, said a women's wear um, at the Royal College, and he said, great, go ahead, meet up with them, make this happen. And then, then, you know, a few months later, I'd sort of produced this collection full of 3D printed Baroque pieces, um, which obviously looking back on now are, are still for me very, um, they're quite literal in their interpretation, but it was nevertheless an interesting move on my part in terms of the historical referencing and going towards something technological but also that felt sympathetic to the historical um like i said that was all framed under the um for, you know the concepts of juxtaposition this you know two opposites and um, that were brought together and then when i started my phd um i was printing out an image of a doublet at two o'clock in the morning about a year into my phd mm after doing a masterclass at the School of Historical Dress. And the printer ran out of ink and started to print this striped image. And I was just literally about to throw it in the bin. And then I was like, hang on, this is actually really interesting. I think I prefer it more than the original image I wanted to print. And so I looked to analyze it. And after careful reflection with my um, supervisors, it became about the importance of the breaks in between the image, so the lines between the image that were formulating gaps. And those, you know, breaks and gaps felt led into the idea of rupture and these kind of disruptions after that. Um, after three years of my PhD, I'd come up with this, um, the principles in a way which were abruption, corruption, interruption, eruption, etc. So there was quite a few of them. 
Um, and I was able to use those terms to categorize my collections in terms of what was going on in every garment or in a collection, for example. And so, yeah, so that kind of has stayed with me. Like, uh, you know, I said at the beginning when I started fashion, and my course leader saying to me, you will never see fashion the same way. Now I can't see anything without seeing disruption. And, you know, it's important to say that disruption doesn't have to be this big, huge, massive collision of environments or clashes of culture. It can also be operating on a very sort of subtle level as well. So it's easy to see disruption in everything you see. Um, and, yeah, like I said, it's kind of, is definitely in all of my collections because that's the way I practice and the way I work, but it's also in the way I teach and the way I deliver. And that's been really important to me as well. Yeah, that's so interesting. The way that that built out to a search idea and almost a, um, a manifesto or approach to all your practice. But also within it, you end up emphasising kind of process within those disruptions because within those breaks, it maybe um, emphasises what's being made and with what material. And that's so interesting as well, the way it built with different conversations and collaborators on the way through. Um, and again, you've done a brilliant job of tying in your kind of education practice and research practice and design practice all together so within that you spoke about having a particular interest in elizabethan dress uh, and in particular with its construction when did that begin it sounded like it might have been at manchester or did it predate that i think my interest and fascination with historical dress probably began when i was quite young i think in syria um, we used to come over to england um, roughly every couple of summers for a couple of months at a time and we would be taken around museums and, you know, because, the, you know, my mum was struggling to find things for us to do. So she'd just be like, okay, let's go and see this gallery, which was amazing for me. I loved it. And I remember seeing these historical garments in their museum context. And it was, I suppose, like to everybody or a lot of people, seeing um, pieces in a museum or a gallery is obviously really exciting. And it's like, you know, where that come from? What's, what's it about? What's its past? But it was doubly exciting for me because... It was also seeing that garment that is, it felt a bit alien to me because I'm Syrian and I was born and brought up with a very different cultural environment around me. So I was seeing this European garment in a context like a museum, which I didn't really experience in Syria. And so it sort of stuck with me. And every time I went back to Syria, visually it stayed in my mind. Um, and then obviously beginning my my. Um, degree in Manchester in 2005 it, it was always sort of the projects would always look back a little bit to history and it was always European history I remember there's one about Victorian dress there's one about Edwardian dress but the Elizabethan reference itself only really began um, again by accident actually when I in my third year quite literally stumbled across a smocking machine and the embroidery studio which is on the third floor at the time in Manchester Met and it was literally covered in dust and I went into the room and it almost fell on me um but I asked what it was about and this lady who I forget her name explained how it worked and showed me how to work it and there was at the time a really small sample of fabric that was just coming off of the machine with some deep red threads kind of coming through and that to me was so visually really exciting because it was so I don't know, it was so accurate, but at the same time felt so handcrafted and very much about the hand being involved in the process. And so I started experimenting with that and playing with it and producing these big, huge smock samples that I would then put on the body or on the mannequin. And I think it was then a conversation with Alison Welsh, I think, 
along with me doing my research on um, patterns of fashion, which are these series of books produced the late Janet Arnold and um, Jenny Tiramani, who um, is an amazing influence on me even today. Seeing these shapes that was producing, these smart shapes, were directly linked to the shapes that were being produced in the 16th century. And there was this kind of almost like tacit connection between what I was doing now, what I was doing, you know, in the contemporary context, which were so similar to what was happening back then without me even realising it was happening. It was all like instinctive that you would get a machine like a smocking machine and do what I was doing with it and you would arrive at these shapes that felt right but I didn't know why it felt right until I could see the visual references of the 16th century and knew that I was very much following my instincts which felt right and so that's when I became very aware that what I was producing was sort of renaissance-esque 16th century perhaps more specifically Um, and then I started to look towards figures of the period and obviously Elizabeth I is perhaps the most striking example and so she stayed with me and has stayed with me ever since. Mm. I think it's really interesting that you were first drawn to the ideas and the kind of elevation of dress within this museum context and then as you say it's an evolution within your design practice but also kind of coincidence of being drawn to a machinery and technology that ends up allowing you to evolve and see that through and I'm also kind of struck by the fact that you've spoken about disrupting or um progressing or experimenting and challenging within fashion process but with using the smocking machine you're using something that at the time you were learning yourself was considered maybe unfashionable or out of date as a piece of technology um, and creating something new with it. Yeah I think at the same time it's important to say that I'm very much process-led so I mean my PhD was practice-based it's very much about obviously the research but research not just being you know, books, it's also through process and experimenting and lots of prototyping and so on. Um, and so it was amazing in a way and is amazing to think that actually something that stayed with me, which is Elizabethan dress, actually only really happened through process. Mm. It shows, I think, and highlights the importance of working with your hands and appreciating the materials and the equipment around you Um sort of bringing in the kind of craftsman or craftsperson that's within you and applying that trusting your gut and it's that sort of tacit knowledge that happens I think in in that context that I think is amazing and that is so little understood and I think that's something I want to explore longer term perhaps um, in the future. I'm excited to see what comes of that that sounds really really fascinating Mm -hmm. perhaps at this point we could bring in your object choice yes please introduce your object and describe it for the listener please so my object is actually made up of a series of different fabrics I'm showing them to you now um so you can see them but they're all different oops I'm kind of dropping everything in the background at the same time (laughs) they're all different striped fabrics um from Aleppo Syria my dad um, went back for the first time in 10 years, well, nearly 10 years, since the Civil War broke out in 2011, to Syria. Um, and his return actually triggered a really emotional kind of response from me in terms of my practice, but also as a person. Um, I've always felt very much this kind of... Um, I'm, I have dual nationalities, so I'm Arabic, I'm Syrian as well as I'm British, but I've never felt like I belong in either location and either place and I think my dad's return to Syria and showing me the fabrics that I was surrounded by as a child 
um, triggered such a strong emotional response that I had to sort of talk about that through my practice, which would then be the first time I talked about it um, in years and years and years. And actually it's something that I want to continue talking about because I felt a new sense of reward achieved through looking at my cultural heritage mm -hmm. that I necessarily encountered before through looking at European dress history. So these fabrics were made by hand on very old-fashioned jacquard looms in Aleppo. And there's dark blue stripes, there's black stripes. There are very narrow pinstripes, um, sort of slightly semi-shiny fabrics, very jacquard -y. If anybody knows what jacquard is, it's this kind of um, very intensely woven, or at least these are very intensely woven um, fabrics. And they're visually really exciting because they're quite highly decorated. Not only just that they're stripes, but the content of the stripe contains zigzags and circles. Um, and it just feels really rich. And I can't help but want to feel it. And even smelling it takes me back to me being a teenager again and being a child, a child and being surrounded by these fabrics in Aleppo in our textile shop when I was a child. There's a real sensory kind of link or uh, stimulus within them, as well as them ending up relating to your own practice and interests. And you said there that through them, you were able to kind of work through some particular memories or connections in your own practice, which is really interesting. You having just said that about process being the lead. So was that a, I suppose it, I, I can anticipate the answer, but was that an emotional process? So weirdly enough, I had not received these fabrics before I began the collection that talks about these fabrics. So. Mm -hmm. My dad had already returned to Syria and was sending me images of everything we'd left behind. So there'd be objects in my bedroom, objects in the living room, old toys, old clothes. I remember vividly an image of a cardigan that my dad had sent to me, whereby it was so disheveled anyway, even when I was wearing it as a child. But by that point, it was even more disheveled. But there was such um, a vivid kind of richness to the image that I just couldn't help but want to go into that and immerse myself somehow in that environment so I wanted to go back to my photo albums and look at the time when I was wearing it and look at the person underneath that garment and who that person was looking around that too to the environment that I was in so this really hot um, co country that was full of really rich smells and flavors and my family that I really still miss terribly um, and I've not seen for like 20 years the images took me back to that place and the collection that I did happened sort of really quickly because I couldn't wait for my dad to come back and then bring me the objects on my fabrics. And so I wanted to talk about the move from my creative practice as in like looking at the European centric historical dressing, which I'm good at doing and I've done that for a long time, but then the transition or rather the introduction of my cultural heritage and Syria specifically and I didn't want to um, bring it in sort of in a way that seemed either insensitive or too sudden and not doing it justice. So I brought it through the lens of um, traveling and sort of journeying um, around the 19th century. So Lord Byron, for example, who went to the Levant um, and would investigate what people used to wear and study what people would wear and often wear it himself, which is problematic because it brings in the concepts of um, appropriation versus, versus appreciation, which obviously we're all aware of now. But it allowed me, I suppose, to take a symbolic return to my heritage and do that in a contemporary way that felt sensitive and felt mature and um, considerate to 
my cultural heritage, which is obviously dual. Um, and so I brought all of the references through, but not without using any of the fabrics and the materials. And that was the collection called a body work called Mixed Other Arab British. And so that was last summer. And then this summer, I'm going to be revisiting that again, using these fabrics. And I'm really, really excited about doing that. Oh, yeah, that sounds amazing. So perhaps we, we you started exploring it through that historical lens in a way that provides that distinct connection with your previous process. And then now maybe it's going to become a bit more explicit um, and some of those personal resonances will evolve. So is the fabric, um, is it typical of the, you said it was a real memory, um, memory warmer or memory prompter. Is it typical of things that you saw people wearing or in people's homes around you growing up? Or is it because of that connection to your kind of family's profession and your home that it resonates? So my earliest memory is actually when I was in my family textile shop in the um, old souk in, in Aleppo. And I remember vividly sort of being at the top of this really high pile of different rolls of fabrics, different materials that were all folded up on one top of one another and just kind of really feeling them all over my arms, my hands being very much um, overwhelmed almost by the very strong smell of the fabrics because it was a very um, densely packed textile shop. Mm-hmm. It's a heat of summer, I think it was as well. So everything was quite hot and humid. I remember cutting into the fabrics and starting to play with them and make things out of them. I think I was about three or four years old. But then my Arabic grandmother saw me doing that and she said, well, no, 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 you need to make clothes and you need to start constructing garments. So she took me to um, her house and she had this really, really old pedal sewing machine and she would make all of the children's clothes on it. So I had pyjamas made by her, always five sizes too big, but she always <laughs> that I'd grow into them eventually and I never did but, um, <laughs> but it was really good because she obviously she had a really good understanding of clothing construction so I learned how to sew garments from her and then I would take that experience and that knowledge with the fabrics that accumulated secretly by the way from my dad's textile shop very uh, well paid and because I had ADHD I never used to sleep at all um, I would stay up all night making stuff and I remember one morning when my mother woke up and I'd I can't remember doing this but I remember bits of doing this which was me taking down all the neck curtains and the bits of fabrics like these striped fabrics from my dad's textile shop and assembling what I called a wedding dress I don't know why I was making a wedding dress wow then I'm realizing as my mom walked in that that was obviously not the right thing to have done because we just lost all our neck curtains you know fearing the wrath of my mother actually it was quite the opposite I shouldn't have worried at all because she actually loved what I was doing and that was that you know that spirit of of encouragement and being surrounded by these fabrics that always makes me feel so positive so when Mm -hmm. I see these fabrics it takes me back to me and my very the very start of my relationship with fabric and eventually with fashion and so I can't help but feel like I'm entering a very positive sphere or um, realm when I'm feeling and looking at these fabrics. Absolutely, they relate to a supportive space, yeah. um, and both of those kind of seminal memories that you touched on there, involving your grandmother and then your mother, they're moments that could have turned a different way, but both of them encouraged you um, and maybe put you on this path of practice within doing it. That's amazing. So, your family have a textile shop. Does that mean that you're fulfilling or following in the foot a long tradition or the footsteps of your family history of textiles running the family for a long time? 
Yes, I am. I see myself as somebody who's following on with my family's tradition, but in a different direction because my family in Syria are very much involved in the textile industry. And so they see fashion as something that doesn't necessarily make money at all. And it's just sort of something that um, your grandmother does on your behalf and you buy clothes from the market and that's fine. And so my relationship with um, with fashion, I suppose, takes on that little bit, that kind of energy of it's really about working with the materials and the fabrics, the construction, innovating and finding new ways of making things. And in a strange sort of way, my garments at the end become, or they talk about the idea of timelessness, which I know is a problematic term, but it's this idea of it's definitely not led by trend and it's definitely not led by the latest, whatever it is. And it's been influenced, um, hopefully wholeheartedly by the process. And so I'm very process driven because that's what's been ingrained in me. So I do see myself as following in my family's footsteps in a way, but in a slightly different direction, I suppose. Yeah. And within this, you've told stories about your family. I've also really enjoyed on your Instagram around this um, particular collection. You released a couple of photos that were from your family's history and perhaps from those albums you described yourself going back to. There's um, a really lovely one of you and your mother, I think, in, mm. in 1989. And then a very cute one of you ironing as a toddler that I really enjoyed. <laughs> yeah, the um, is actually, I'm wearing one of the pieces my grandmother made for me. Oh, amazing. By that point, it was only two sizes too big. So it was just about I was just about ready for it, I think. Oversized. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> look. Um, I was interested in those kind of twofold. On the one hand, I wondered um, how your family feel about it and how, you know, what do they think of this collection mixed other Arab-British and this kind of progression or exploration you're undertaking through your practice? Yeah, so I think to provide some context, um, the reason why my dad went back was because my grandmother had passed away, sadly, last year. Um, so obviously it was a very difficult time, obviously, for him and his um, brothers and sisters immediately, but also um, um, later down the line, in a way, it affected me, of course, because, you know, that was somebody who was hugely important to my um, to my career in a really strange sort of way, but also somebody who I've not seen for 20 years and will never see again. So that was um, something that I had to deal with and I dealt through my, I dealt with through my um, work, I suppose. Um, my grandmother was always very supportive and wanted me to pursue this. But I think that in the back of her mind and back of my family's mind in Syria, there was this idea that no one the just a kid, he's just doing his thing, he's just making clothes, but he'll get on and do a serious job when he gets older. And so when I got a bit older and I was like, hell no, I'm still doing fashion, there was this kind of slight resistance and eventually became into it became a more serious resistance. And it was like, no, you're gonna if you're gonna do something creative, you're gonna go and do architecture. Um so it, it changed this the land sort of slightly changed from one of supporting, yeah, be creative, be a fashion designer, to one of, but how are you going to make money? How are you going to survive? Mm. It's really viable. What are you doing? Are you crazy? Um, and so I can see now, I mean, I was battling that at the time, and my mother, who is amazing and very much has been behind me throughout the whole process, um, I can see now how that actually isn't necessarily them speaking. It's actually the culture and the environment that they were brought up in and living in that was speaking in a way to 
privileging and prioritizing, you know, people who become doctors or lawyers, or if you're going to be creative, become an architect. So of course, mm-hmm. you do have a lot of people who operate in those disciplines in Syria, which is great, of course, but you know, it doesn't necessarily make becoming a fashion designer easy. Mm-hmm. And so I think that once I'd proven myself a little bit, and once I then got to the Royal College, and once then I was successful with a scholarship to go and do a PhD, and then got a PhD, I think then my family were like, all right, okay, yeah, I can see you've done the right thing. Yeah, it's a great thing that you've done. And so <laughs> the land kind of shifted again. It, be, it became really super positive, and it was like, oh, it's great, it's fantastic, it's so brilliant, and so I just kind of leave it at that. But there is a kind of... Um, sort of undercurrent of them not admitting that they want to be take a different pathway and I've sort of proven them wrong but it's it's fine I, I understand their point of view but equally I think I'm really um grateful to have had also that cultural um that environment where I was brought up in whereby you prioritized fabrics you prioritized construction and you very much all sat together in a room and talked about it and they would pass around the things I was making around the room and say oh look at this and it was very um important I think for me to be and lucky for me to have been in that environment and then growing up now I can also build on that and I'm lucky to say that I am Syrian so that I can um tap that energy a little bit and that the spirit of that and the culture and my heritage and bring that through my practice um, and hopefully I'll be able to carry on doing that in a way that does it justice. That sounds like an incredible progression and, and yeah, an exchange. I think also it must have been quite exposing, I suppose. So that was the other element I was interested in in terms of the collection, but also the sharing of those photos. Having based a lot of your work on this incredibly detailed practice-based research um, and some of these collaborative approaches, how does it feel? How did it feel to then share these more um, personal aspects of, of what might be informing your practice in collections? I was very nervous about doing so before that because I'm quite a private person. But then once mm. I started doing that, I found it a very much a release. Um, and I found more and more, actually, Instagram as a platform for me has become a place where I can communicate with my audience in a way that is meaningful and bring them into the conversation and discussion. Like I said before, I'm very... You know, I'm very proud of the fact that I'm um, a collaborator. I'm proud of my students for embracing collaboration. I love um, talking about cultural identity. I love talking about people's different perspectives on fashion, their views on fashion. And so I think that sharing my images with people in a very public way um, without having talked about it before that, I think gave people a different perspective on my work but also encouraged me to keep doing more because I'd started that ball rolling and it had to keep going if that makes sense so Mm. the way I sort of see it now not that I like to kind of plan things out too much but I will of course course keep going with the European historical referencing which I'm very it's it's in my blood I love doing and I always have done always will do I think but also bring in the sort of Syrian heritage and looking at cultural identity and otherness, which is something that I relate to as a person um, through the medium of fashion, but through special projects. So it's really nice to have that creative freedom now, I think, to be able to talk about my work on a very personal level, if that makes sense. 
yeah, definitely. And it's something that sounds like you've kind of grown in confidence or opportunity to feel that you can that you can do that. So I think that's incredibly brave, but it's also a reflection of the progress of your practice and career. I feel like I could talk about your object choice for hours. It's absolutely fascinating. Um, and I'm really interested to see the way that it evolves through your future collections. So thank you so much for sharing it with us. In particular, those associations with your mother and grandmother um, were really touching to hear. From there, perhaps we could talk a little bit about some of your um, other kind of personal connections to clothing um, before we close. So for a start, do you personally collect anything? I collect white shirts. I love, <gasps> I'm not wearing one now, I'm wearing a pale blue shirt, but um, that's because I'm obsessed with blue at the moment. Um, and it's kind of, I'm not wearing blue nail polish at the moment, but I normally wear blue nail polish. And so at the moment, the colour for me is blue and white, but at the same time, white shirts have been and I think will continue to be my major obsession when it comes to garments. Um, I see there was a piece of writing, I've forgotten by um, who it was by, but it was a 16th century piece of writing or dates back to then. And it was somebody saying that the white shirt or the shirt, sorry, is a sister of the smock. And so it's important to also say that another garment that I'm obsessed with very very obsessed with is a smock form which features in every single one of my collections and that's because the smock eventually i believe is what led to the white the classic white shirt that we understand um and and know today so i collect white shirts i buy them from all different periods usually 18th century shirts and they're just kind of like a shirt library and i think that's how i design so i begin with the classic white shirt every single season or every single project and the first thing I draw is the collar. I have to get the collar right. And then from that emerges the rest of the garment and emerges the rest of the collection. And so it has to be, that shirt library has to be strong and robust in order for me to gain useful information from it, if that makes sense, to build hopefully an exciting collection. Yeah, I love that. So the shirt library, does it evolve collection on collection in your own practice? So for instance, a new acquisition of a shirt to your library ends up informing your own work or is it more like time to start a new collection let's go to the library see what color forms what ideas end up resonating a bit of both I think I mean I'm always on the lookout for white shirts I have an eBay search set up already and it's okay. been, yeah, literally since I think I had eBay from 2008 something um, but I think it's also that library isn't necessarily one that's just archive and then I've got a collection new collection right library which is just the new stuff my archive is very much about the integration of reference material from different periods of history, but also contemporary pieces that I've um, created in response to the reference material. Mm. So that library is quite dynamic in the way that it's formed. Um, but yeah, so that, you know, I'm very, like I said, obsessed with the shirt, but also important to say that the shirt isn't something that's defined necessarily by um um, completely by its colour and cuff and by its whiteness and the crispness of the poplin. I play with those um, elements, I guess, and then put them into different contexts. So you see shirt-like dresses and shirt-like coats mm. and shirt-like other things. And that allows me then to enter this um, this area where I'm creating hopefully new garment archetypes, um, which I really enjoy doing. So trying to as you would perhaps, I'm obsessed with gardening. That's the other thing I'm really obsessed with. So the idea <laughs> of developing new plant species, plant specimens, I don't know. So species is meant to be the plant that's not been hybridized, I think. Mm -hmm. When you've brought in another plant to the equation, then you create a hybrid. So I think my garments almost, the archetypes I'm creating 
the new archetypes and grazing are almost seen as that in a way as like as hybrids. Mm. Um, it's very complicated. I'm not going to bore you with it, but it's something that I'm really oh, informs everything. Yeah, that's so intriguing to not only create new practice, but create new forms and to challenge the kind of definition or deviation between different ones. And also to take something as classic and fundamental, as you say, as the smock or the shirt to play those games is really, really intriguing. So I'm still caught on the library. Is this something, um, is this a professional space and a set of pieces or do you ever borrow from and wear the items as well? Yeah, so the... I do wear some of my own shirts and some of my reference shirts as well, because not all of them, I mean, if they're really old and very precious, I would never touch them without wearing gloves. Um, but some of them I do just sort of wear casually or whatever. But And that's, I think it's important because I think then you get to enter what it feels like to wear such a piece. You're not just looking at it in um, the context of something hanging on a hanger or on the table. You're actually putting it in your body and getting to feel what that linen or whatever it is a material might feel like in your skin. Um, and so that's important as well. But to say as well, my library is a porous library. In other words, I consider, um, you know, the archives of um, Prato, the museum in Italy, for example, as part of my library because I've been to study the smocks, the, the 16th century smocks. is a really good example of a man's smock and a woman's smock in Prato, in Italy. And, that in a way forms part of my visual library. So I've got really strong images of that in my archive collection. And that's because that's still something that I return to even now to inform um, new ideas. And I think the other thing that's important to say is that it's not like I need to collect a new piece because I've run out of ideas. I think a shirt or whatever garment you choose to inform your practice is something that has endless potential. And that's very much, um, it comes from, the post-structuralist philosopher Gilles Deleuze, who I looked at during my PhD, the idea that any object around you has endless potential. So you could break down a chair into its constituent parts and reassemble it in a completely new way. It would still hold on the, to the identity of the previous chair, but also forms a new identity because it looks slightly different. And so that's the same principle that I apply to anything around me, including my shirt library, which is that you can break down the same shirt into different parts and reassemble it into completely new things every time again could talk to you for hours I think that's so interesting and coming at it from the perspective of being a curator I'm really interested in the different histories or different interpretations or different potentials of objects and of collections and I think it's really fascinating to think of it in such a fundamental kind of perspective of, of breaking it down and reconstructing rather than it being um, a kind of literal thing about the finished and final object Perhaps as a final question to kind of reverse it. So you spoke there about the potential of, of the object or of an item, um, but also about the fact that quite rightly, I think, your library extends beyond your own kind of capacity or collection and reference pieces um, through to the collections of museums or that surround you and they might also um, be able to inform or influence your work. If I were to collect one item of your work to represent you in a museum collection, what would you want it to be and why? It would probably be the shirt that I have called the Carl shirt. Um, and that shirt was, it was, it became really important, I think, for me when I was developing the initial prototype in 2015 with my sample machinist, Jean, who is from Barnsley, but we made it in Sheffield, which is um, where I'm from. And 
Then a few months later, I found out I was shortlisted for the LVMH prize and took that shirt along with the collection I was making at the time to show, you know, Nicola Jeskier and, and J.W. Anderson and all these different amazing designers my work. And then in one of the evenings where they held a reception, um, Karl Lagerfeld, the late Karl Lagerfeld, came around and he wasn't stopping at every booth. We all had these different booths where we could exhibit our work and mine obviously contained this shirt and he's he came by and then stopped and then came in and with his fingerless glove started to feel this quite crisp shirt with its um starched kind of pleated collar form and he said what is this made from and at, at the time i talked about you know at the time i was really into um trying to find alternatives for starching methods traditional starching methods and so i bonded these fabrics together and got it pleated and they explained the whole process to him. And he was really into it, really excited. And then Lady Amanda Harlick was also with him at the time. And he said, we have to buy it. We have to buy it now. I love it. I love it. I love it. We have to buy it. And of course, then, you know, I was only five, yeah, five six years ago. I was like 27. Right. So it was just hugely overwhelming for a small designer who's come from Sheffield to then be in Paris during Paris Fashion Week to be speaking to the late Karl Lagerfeld and him then buying my work and essentially then launching my career because of the the buzz and the hype and the media attention that I got afterwards. So I would probably donate that shirt to you. And I think as well that would be quite, um, I suppose it'd be quite a good representation of what it is I do and have done since then, but also prior to that too, because I've always been into that pleated collar neck, mm. which is an asymmetric construction, and actually first began when I shared my first collection in 2008, and I've revisited since and called um, the Karl Lagerfeld, and has now be- sorry the Karl Lagerfeld shirts, and has now become the Karl Concepts because you can see that asymmetric construction and the pleated collar in lots of my collections. Mm which again shows that kind of carry through or the opportunity you see to disrupt or reapply forms to different kinds of garments rather than being strictly categorised. And also it shows the way that you build on historical practice, perhaps um, both in form, but also, as you said, with starching technologies uh, to create a new. So that sounds like a brilliant um, choice that would tell a thousand stories for a hundred years. So thank you. That's a wonderful choice. Thank you so much for joining me, Neville. It's been so interesting. Um, And thank you all for listening. Thank you very much. And thank you for your lovely questions as well. I really appreciate it. Mm